God bless you all. It's good to see all of you here at Encounter Church. Thank you all for joining. Um, if you are new to Encounter Church or just forgotten what we're all about, we, we, we exist to reach the lost generation with the good news of Jesus Christ, and we do believe that the good news of Jesus brings hope. And we also see ourselves equipping the communities here in Lodi and also the surrounding areas with just you know being part of a thriving community and also with things that we need in life. And um, that's part of the reason why we started this series on work, is that we want to be equipped on having a, a good mindset on what work is and what the Bible tells us about work. So we're going to continue that. Um, But before we get started, let's all pray. Um, So bow our heads if you want to join me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for giving us another week where we could breathe and live and enjoy life. And uh, thank you for the rain. Lord, um, let everybody be safe who's out there driving and doing things, and may you protect us and open up our, our, our minds so that we could hear what you have to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have learned so far that God cares about work. He cares about everything. Not just what we do on Sundays, but he cares about what we do every day, every hour, every minute. God cares, and he wants to be a part of what we are doing. In fact, he created us so we could partner with him in every moment. But we know when we look at ourselves, yeah, we, we humans don't partner with him most of the time. This has been true since the time of the Bible. After God gave Israel, the nation of Israel, clear instructions about how they would partner with him, the Israelites had forgotten what God had said and did things their own way. Things that were pleasing in their own eyes. But God still had a plan for them, even though they were doing things their own way. Through prophecy, the prophets of God would speak about what God would do. Let's let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 65, 17, 25, and see what God would still do even after they had sinned, even after they messed up, uh, and they messed up with one another, and they also sinned against God. So Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Isaiah 65. So go to the book of Isaiah, and it's towards the end of the book. I believe it's before Jeremiah. Isaiah 65. 17 to 25. And this is, again, what the part of God's plan, even after the Israelites had sinned. It says, For I will create a new heavens and a new earth. 
The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work, the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. But the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. With the rebellion of humans, corruption came. We were supposed to make this world prosper, but... Through our sin, we contaminate this world. We vandalize shalom. But God will renew the heavens and the earth. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. New heavens and a new earth. Heavens and earth. Where have we seen this connection before of heavens and earth? You should be thinking about Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now in Isaiah 65.17, the passage that we read, it says that God, I will create new heavens and a new earth. A new earth. When we read Isaiah, we should be thinking about Genesis, about creation what God is going to do in the future is similar to what God did. In the beginning was the heavens and the earth. And in the future, God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And within this new created order, nothing will cause us to remember the world of before. You know, there are things in this world that trigger us to have bad memories. Maybe you hear a noise or a song and it reminds you of a trauma that, that you had in the past. Part of the reason that that triggering takes place is that humans have vandalized this world and you see graffiti in this world and it just reminds you of that trauma. But in the new heavens and the new earth, nothing will trigger you to have bad memories. Nothing will prompt your mind 
to recollect what once was. And in this world, God would create Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of this new, uh, was the capital of this, of Israel, just like Washington, D.C. is our capital. It's kind of neat that God is creating Jerusalem. We might not think about its significance since none of us have been to Jerusalem. But it might be similar to God saying he will make a new Washington, D.C. in this new world. And I, I just want you to think about that. A new Washington, D.C. Just, just think about it. If you, if you just want to imagine this new heavens and this new world, what, what would that look like? You might think of it as, you know, so many people have this idea of this new world, this, this where you're just in this place as, a, as an orb, as a, like an ethereal orb flying around. But is that the picture that we're getting here? Is that the picture that we are getting here? <laughs> and um, I don't think that's the picture that we're getting here. Many people, including Christians, have this idea that in the afterlife we will be like these orbs flying around. And I don't know if you have seen the first Scooby-Doo live-action movie when Scooby and the gang went to Spooky Island and at one point of the movie, all of the spirits of the people were like in this, in this bowl. And like even Scrappy-Doo was absorbing these spirits to be omega powerful. These spirit-looking orbs are what many people think we would look like when we go to heaven. But that's not what Isaiah tells us that the future looks like. In the future, God will make new heavens and a new earth. In the future, God will make Jerusalem. In the future, God will make Washington, D.C. In the future, God will make San Francisco. In the future, God will make Sacramento. God will make Lodi. God will make Stockton. Well, maybe not Stockton. It's okay if God doesn't make Stockton. But the point is, just think about it. You being an Israelite, hearing that God will make Jerusalem in the future, it's akin to us hearing that God will make Lodi or Sacramento. And in this world, you will not hear crying, you will not hear weeping, no child will die young, life will be long, there will be happiness, true happiness, true peace. And guess what? There will be work. In this future world, we will work. And it will be fulfilling work. We will build houses and live in them. We will plant vineyards and eat the fruit of the vines. We will reap the fruit of our labor. We will enjoy the work of our hands. We will labor with success. In this future world, 
Don't think of orbs floating around. Think of this passage that we read in Isaiah. New heavens, new earth, Jerusalem, Lodi, work, good work, peace, goodness. Sin is gone. And there's another image of the future, and we could find it in Ezekiel if you have your Bible. Open it up with me to Ezekiel 47. It's just a few books after Isaiah. Ezekiel 47, 7 through 12. And Ezekiel, like Isaiah, he's another prophet. And he's on a tour. And the tour guide takes him out to this new temple that comes in the future. And it reads like this, Isaiah 47, 7 through 12. When I had returned... I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. He said to me, the tour guide, talking to Ezekiel, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to Arabah, to the Arabah. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Englaim. These will, these will be, become places where nets are spread out to dry. Their fish will consist of many different kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be left for salt. All kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruits will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruits will be used for eating and their leaves for healing. So if you read the, the last chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you will see that he saw this new temple, and he saw a lot of trees. Life was flourishing. There was a riverbank, and the trees were growing. The rivers that watered the trees came from this new temple. We read places like Ereba and, and Gedi and Englaim. What are these places? Where, where are they? Well, they were actually the driest places that Ezekiel knew of. And now, in the future, we see the land become filled with water, filled with life. The Dead Sea would become the living sea. The foul water would become fresh water. The water that comes from the temple will cause people to live. The creatures will get big. We will fish, and we will get a lot of fish. There will be different kinds of fish. Trees will also produce different kinds of fruit. And we could eat the good fruit from these trees and even use the leaves of these trees as medicine. Trees, rivers, fruit, life, animals. We, we see all of these different images with this new temple, this new world that Ezekiel is depicting. And it's very like Eden, these trees it's, and these animals and these rivers. It's imagery from the, the Garden of Eden, back to beauty. Things 
will be good. There will be life because of the living water that flows from the temple. According to Christopher Wright, he's a scholar, and he said, this river, the river that flows from the temple, spoke of the reversal of the curse, death, and barrenness of exile through their return of the Israelites to the land as a people restored to God's blessing and favor. Beyond that, it spoke of the true source of all life and healing, the presence of the living God in his sanctuary. For those who believe in the Messiah, Jesus, the living water, the the river of living water, speaks of the continuing welling up of the Spirit of God, which brings life and blessing to the believer here and now and flows out to others. We need to remember that all renewal in the church or in the world flows by God's grace from God's presence and is not something we generate or control. And ultimately, the river of life in Ezekiel, what we just read, and even in Revelation, anticipates the new creation in which God will have lifted the curse from the earth forever and dwell in living, life-giving abundance with his redeemed people gathered from all nations. Most of the Old Testament was written, was directed to the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews. It was not written to us although we may benefit from the Hebrew Bible. You could think of it like the Hebrew Bible is not written to us, but for us. However, in the New Testament, Jesus gives a fuller view to things that people understood one way in the Old Testament, a limited way that they understood the Old Testament. First of all, something that Jesus revealed is that God is inviting all people, not just the Israelites. Second, the second thing that Jesus shows us is that the living water, the living water that we see that flows from the temple, living water is not just this strong power. It's actually God's power. This image that we see in Ezekiel has already started. It has already begun. Jesus is the temple. He is the source of the living rivers that flow and cleanse us and gives us life. When he was talking to the Samaritan lady in John chapter 4, he said, the water that I give will cause you to thirst no more. My water, the water I give, is living water. And we find out that these waters are actually God's living spirit. God's spirit is the life-giving water. And he, the Spirit, dwells within us. And as a church, as a community, and even individually, these waters flow from us. The Spirit gives life to others. We give hope and we bring life. Of course, this picture of Ezekiel and this picture of Isaiah has not fully culminated. We are still waiting for the full culmination when the kingdom is fully here. It has started. It's here. 
but it's not completely here at the same time. Yet, God, through his spirit, will make sure that there will be a new earth. And if we die before then, the prophet Daniel tells us that we will resurrect. Daniel 12.2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. But in the meantime, we work. We bring life. We do what is good. And what is good? Micah, the prophet Micah, offers us a concise summary of the biblical ethics of work, of what is good. Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what, is, what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. You want to know what God has called you to do. Figuring out the specifics can be hard, but whatever God has called you to do, know that he has called you to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly. In our worship, in our work, we do what is just. We do our work with kindness. We do our, we do hum, we do our work, our worship, with humility. How does that look like for you when you're working? How can you show love how can you show kindness? How can you be humble? Sometimes it's helpful to look at models, at examples of people who did things right. And maybe we could get an idea of what it means to work as God would want us to work. And I want us to start off by looking at the life of Joseph. Many who have grown up in church have heard the story of Joseph. It's an exciting story. We see Joseph, who was a great-grandson of Abraham. He was a son of promise. He would inherit the land according to the promise God had made to Abraham. But things go downhill with him. Joseph was supposed to inherit the land, but he was sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. God had promised his family to be blessed and fruitful. But now he's in Egypt. If God was going to bless Joseph, if we look at the world's standards of blessing, what are they? Money, stability, cars, shoes, fame. Well, if we look at Joseph through the world's standards, Joseph was not blessed by God, he was cursed. I mean, even though his fathers had received promises about blessing and land, Joseph ended up as a slave. His own brothers sold him to slavery. How could the all-knowing God tell Abraham, 
that his family would be blessed, when God knew that Joseph would end up in slavery? How could the old knowing God tell Abraham that his family would be blessed when God knew that Joseph would end up in slavery? Joseph was cursed according to the world's standards. He had no money, no cars or horses during that time. He had nothing of his own. He was shamed and he was insignificant as a slave. Well, at least in worldly terms. However, despite the standards of the world, God still had a plan. Joseph was still blessed. Not because he had the money, not because of his position in society. Joseph was blessed because God was with him. Because God was with Joseph, Joseph prospered as a slave when the odds were against him. Joseph prospered in prison. And then, unexpectedly, God had exalted him over all of Egypt. God gave Joseph many children and blessings. One author said, It may have seemed to the eyes of the world that Joseph was cursed and afflicted. But all the world was blessed through him as the Lord used him to provide food for all the families of the earth in the devastating famine. God was with Joseph. And Joseph, even when things were rough, he did what was right. He honored God by not sleeping with Potiphar's wife. God gifted him so that he would have good standing with those over him. With God's help, Joseph was able to prepare Egypt and others for a famine that would have destroyed the nations. And when Joseph met his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, Joseph forgave them. Joseph was smart and forgiving. He didn't know everything that God had planned for him. He didn't know it all. But God had his hands over Joseph and had prepared Joseph so he could enter Egypt so that he could prepare the way for Israel so that humans could live through a famine. Like Joseph, many of us find ourselves in a position where we don't know everything that God is doing. And like Joseph, we need to flee from temptation. We need to love God. We need to love neighbor and what we do, and we need to forgive those who have wronged us. Another person that we will look at is Daniel, which is somebody that I already mentioned. I mentioned earlier that he wrote um, that we would resurrect. He was an Israelite. He was part of the nation of Israel. He lived during the time when Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar attacked the temple, and captured several Israelites. The Israelites, including Daniel and even Ezekiel, he he became an exile as well. They became exiles in the land of Babylon, a land foreign to them. But God gave Daniel and his friends wisdom. Daniel and his friends modeled faithfulness to God even though they were in a rough place. Even though they were in a foreign land, 
Daniel and his friends observed the Mosaic food regulations. They trusted God. They prayed. They refused to commit idolatry, even if they were threatened with execution. Daniel was bold enough to tell the truth to the evil kings, and he never stopped praying. Like Joseph, Daniel and his friends show us what it looks like to partner with God, to work for God in high-ranking places of foreign kingdoms. They spoke the truth. They did what was right. They used their gifts for the glory of God. But Joseph and Daniel, both, both Joseph and Daniel interpreted dreams to help the kings and gave wise counsel. They weren't in synagogues, but they were serving God in the king's palace. When we look at Daniel and his friends, we see godly responses to conflicts over the free exercise of religion and conscience. Eating the wrong type of food threatened Daniel's religion. But Daniel explained how eating the, his type of diet would be beneficial. He used wisdom instead of just being defiant and obtuse. When Babylon was going to kill all the worshipers of the true God, Daniel and his, and his friends prayed, and God blessed them by helping them interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar instructs everyone to bow down to an idol. But Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. Consequently, the king had them thrown into a fiery furnace, but God protected the three Hebrew boys. And even though the kingdom was horrible, Daniel still had genuine affection for the king and had an authentic concern for his welfare. But he didn't compromise what he believed. He did not compromise on his convictions. Though Daniel did not provoke his opponents, he, he didn't allow them to intimidate him into altering his worship and prayer. At one point, Daniel's life was at stake because of his prayer life, but Daniel kept praying to God. His opponents were mad at him because he kept praying, so they threw him into the lion's den, but God delivered Daniel by closing the mouths of lions. Daniel and his friends show us that God's people should walk in accordance with what God has taught, even if the stakes are high. We continue to pray even if we're in crisis. We refuse to bow down to idols. We still love pagans, unbelievers, and we tell them the truth. We remain from worldly temptations even if we find ourselves in a foreign land. And we never allow pagan threats to keep us from praying and worshiping God. God will, ne will not always deliver us, as he did with Daniel and his friends. But as the Hebrew boys said, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. We will not worship idols, even if God does not deliver us from the current situation. We will stay firm, even if it costs our lives to, to, to stay firm. And we know, as Daniel said, that even if we die, God will be faithful to raise us up from the dead and to be in this new world, in this new heaven and new earth. Nehemiah lived several decades after Daniel, but like Daniel and Joseph, Nehemiah was a Jew serving in foreign courts. A foreign king had arisen and allowed the Israelites to return home. They were in Babylon and Persia. Now they could go back home and rebuild and Nehemiah, he, he was able to rebuild the land. And to prepare for that, he prayed and fasted. He also studied. He checked what resources he needed to rebuild Israel, what passports he needed to travel. And he always prayed during this process. He recognized God's hand. Nehemiah was a builder who relied on God's power and guidance. He was committed to his work. He, he worked long hours. Sometimes he didn't even have time to change clothes because of his vigilance and constant work. He stayed committed. He avoided distractions. He stayed till the end. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem and tried rebuilding the city because it was destroyed because of the Babylons, Babylon, Babylonians. Babylonians. And it took work. But Nehemiah trusted in God and knew that there would be rewards. The next person that we will look at is unlike Nehemiah, Daniel, and Joseph. She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite, and her name was Ruth. Ruth, as I said, was not an Israelite, but she was married to an Israelite whose mom was... Naomi. Ruth did not have any kids with the Israelite, with Naomi, so she didn't really have a source of income. And as a Moabite, she was also not considered part of Israel's family. But Ruth demonstrated commitment to God. She, she announced her pagan gods, the gods that the Moabites followed, and insisted that Israel would be her people and Yahweh, the God of Israel, would be her God. When Ruth entered the community of Israel after her, her husband died, she worked the fields to get food for herself. She gleaned it, and, and she would get food for herself and for her mother-in-law. And she was able to be a person, to become a person of good reputation. People knew that Ruth was self-sacrificial and loving. She worked according to God's word. She was honest. It didn't fall into immorality, even when she had lost everything. She was loving and worked for her mother-in-law, who had lost her husband and sons. Ruth's work caused her to be known as a person of good reputation. And as we close, let's look at Esther 
and her story. You could find it, the story of Esther, in the book of Esther. The book talks about how the Jews were dispersed in the Persian Empire. The Persian king, Xerxes, he had disposed of his queen, Vashti, because Vashti was too bold and displeased him. So the Persian king, Xerxes, looked for another queen, and he found Esther. Esther was a beautiful, young Jewish girl. He sleeps with her, and she pleases him. Esther hides her Jewish identity as she is elevated to be Xerxes' queen in the royal palace. This story kind of disrupts our flow of how we think things work. You might even feel offended. Feminist interpreters feel outraged that Esther put herself out there for the king. Others are offended that unlike Daniel, who identified himself as a Jew and lived as one publicly in pagan courts, unlike Daniel, Esther keeps quiet about her faith, about her ethnicity, Conservative Jews would have been bothered that Esther slept with the man to whom she was not married to. Through all of these moral compromises, and they are moral compromises, through these moral compromises, Esther rose to a place of power and influence. Tim Keller posed this question. In such morally, culturally, spiritually ambiguous situations, does God still work with us and through us? Does God still work with us and through us when we are not doing things right? Does God still work with us even when we are sinning? The book of Esther shows us that, yes, God can still work with us and through us even when we are doing the wrong things. In the fourth chapter of Esther, we learn that Haman a high official had convinced the king that the Jews were dangerous. Therefore, Haman was able to secure a royal decree that on a future date, the neighbors of Jewish families throughout the land would be free to kill the Jews and plunder their wealth. A Jewish leader, Mordecai, who was Esther's relative, found out about this and told Esther to use her power her influence to avert the danger. A believer in God, whose place of power, she was able to get that place because she compromised in several areas. A believer in God, whose place of power in the palace was not secured, was asked to use her power to bring a more just social order. Mordecai said to her, to Esther, who knows? 
But you might have the power that you have in your position for such a time as this. Yes, Esther had compromised morally and spiritually. But who knows? Maybe God had her in this place of power for such a time as this, for this time, so that she could help her people. The story of Esther is similar to the story of Daniel and Joseph. All three were believers in God. They were officials in pluralistic, non-believing governments and cultures. None of them were priests, elders, or teachers. They had reached the highest circles of power in their secular cultural institutions, but God used them mightily. He used Esther in this secular government, and Esther was able to persuade the king to change this law about being able to kill the Jews. The Jews were able, after this law being changed, the Jews were able to protect themselves. But it's interesting because if you found this book, maybe in a coffee table or a library, and you, you saw that the title of the book was The Man God Uses, or The Woman God Uses, you would probably think that the book is about a missionary, or a teacher, or a pastor, or a church leader, or a specialist in some sort of spiritual world. But we see that in the story of Joseph, or in the story of Esther, it's not always that way. And an English Anglican preacher once said, in the long term, I think being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study group is in many ways easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. And what we should be doing each day is easier to discern more black and white, not so great. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men and women in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, in the arts. This is the great shortfall today. The book of Esther is about a woman with power in the civil government working against racial injustice. And God used her. Don't miss how Esther relates to us. A Hispanic pastor preached on the book of Esther, and many of his older members within his church were immigrants with little money or clout. Many of the younger generation had gone out to college and had become professionals, the preacher told his church that even though the, the younger generation didn't see it, they were in the palace like Esther. They had more financial and cultural capital than they realized. And the preacher said that many were going to use that capital to feather their own nests and move ahead in their own careers rather than leveraging it for others. Many of them would just get comfortable. The Hispanic pastor reminded his congregation that there were poor people across the city who needed their connections and talents. He said that inside their circles of influence and fields of work, there was corruption that needed their attention. 
And he admitted that if his listeners conducted themselves in, in that way, in the way similar to Esther, where they might get in trouble for doing the right thing, Esther could have died by confronting the king. But it's doing the right thing even after messing up and corrupt and compromising morally. He admitted, the pastor admitted, that if the listeners conducted themselves in that way, they might make less money or move up the ladder slower or run into conflict that could hurt their careers. But that didn't matter, said the pastor. Don't just get into the palace and bend every rule you can to stay there. Serve. Serve. You have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Some of us feel like Esther. We got to where we are at by compromising. We're really blessed to be where we are at. And a lot of our actions that, has brought, that have brought us here, some of them were gray, some of them weren't great. It's like the football coach who violates recruiting rules to get the best student athlete to be part of his team. Or like the politician who looks the other way when corruption is taking place but wants to keep their position. You may be like them on a smaller or larger scale. You lie here and there. You manipulate here and there. You may have made some choices that were unethical or in the gray area. You may have told clients that the work was done in a certain way when you knew it wasn't. You may not have spoken out when you should have. And now you have some clout, some power, some stability. But you don't feel as though your conscience is clear. Do you think Esther's conscience was clear? She was probably thinking, I, I slept with him. I, I didn't even say that I was a Jew. Uh, he, she could have given so many excuses. But in reality, is anyone's conscience ever completely clear? We all have things within our closet. And it's never too late. It's never too late to do the right thing. Keller wrote, God urges you to think about where you are and why you are there, to realize the importance of being in the palace. It's, only, it's possible that only then can he use you to do his work in this world. What if God has you in the place that you're in for such a time as this? What will happen if you see that God has put you where you are at for a reason? And even though you did things you weren't supposed to do to get where you're at, what if there's still a reason? What will you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us that you do have a plan. 
that even though things could look rough and bad and challenging and messed up and dirty, Lord, you, you tell us through the prophets that good things are coming. And in the meantime, we do what is right. We do the right thing. Thank you for showing us through your scriptures people who did the right thing. And also people who weren't as clean as we usually think biblical characters are clean. That they're perfect. They're, as we see with Esther, people mess up. And that's so true. A lot of people get into places that you know, they, they really hurt others to get into those places. But Lord, let us see, you know, despite everything we've done, let us recognize that you have us where you want us to be. Maybe where where we are at for such a time as this, things are as they are, and we are in our position, and now we could do something with the capital, with the power, whatever it is, with the deeds that we're doing. We could change the world, even if it's a little. Lord, let us see that. We might not have the clearest conscience, so we might have messed up. May you wash that with your living waters. But moving forward, let's, with your spirit, partnering with you, let us do the right thing. In the name of Jesus, Lord, may you be with us throughout this week. May you protect us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us, and may you all go in peace in Jesus' name.